On October 11, 1923, three brothers, Hugh, Ray, and Roy D'Otremont, boarded a Southern Pacific Railroad train called the Gold Special near the Siskiyou Mountains in Oregon. The trio planned to rob the mail car, a crime that had seen an uptick in recent years. After they jumped onto the train as it was emerging from a tunnel, they shot and killed the brakeman, engineer, and fireman. Then they used dynamite to blow their way into the mail car. But they used too much, and not only did the explosion kill the mail clerk, it also sparked a fire that destroyed the mail car and the valuables inside of it. Their brothers made a run for it. Most people think empty-handed, with four dead bodies in their wake. Officials launched a huge worldwide manhunt. They brought in tons of people to help track down the murderers. Officers from surrounding agencies, postal inspectors, the National Guard, and hundreds of volunteers. Pilots even flew airplanes over the mountains in search of the criminals, something that was unheard of at the time. Although other train robberies happened in the U.S. after this, this one became known as the last great train robbery. And officials brought in an up-and-coming criminologist, UC Berkeley lecturer Edward Oscar Heinrich. Heinrich didn't know that this case would put him on the map as a pioneer of American criminology, who would go on to earn nicknames like the American Sherlock Holmes. For the first time, files from this case and thousands of others that Heinrich worked on, along with crime scene evidence and other things from his crime lab, are officially available to use for research in the Bancroft Library's archives at UC Berkeley. There's no other collection like it in the world. This is Fiat Box, a Berkeley News podcast. I'm Ann Bryce. The collection spans nearly 150 linear feet of crime lab materials. Photographs, diaries, notes, newspaper clippings, letters, and pieces of evidence— all that shed light on some of America's most notorious criminal cases that happened during Heinrich's career, from the late 1910s to his death in 1953. Tor Haugen is a writer at the UC Berkeley Library. He published an article about Heinrich and the collection earlier this month. He and I spoke with Lara Michaels, head of archival processing at the Bancroft Library. Lara spent about a year processing the Heinrich collection, which was donated by Heinrich's son Mortimer in 1969. The collection officially opened in December of last year. And 50 years might seem like kind of a long time to not process a collection like this. But Lara says there were good reasons to wait. First, it was important that plenty of time had passed after these crimes happened. Some of the crime scene photos in the collection are very graphic. You know, these are victims of, of rape and murder and there's a lot of um, sort of going back and forth about how to, not only how much I can make these available, but also, you know, how much I reveal names of people and things like that. If the crimes had occurred more recently, an archivist might be compelled to exclude certain items from the collection to protect victims' identities and their families' privacy. In the end, Lara retained almost everything in the collection, save some biological and physical specimens that would be easily lost and hard to prepare and view, like single strands of hair or single fiber samples from carpets. And another reason it took so long to process this collection 
was it was a really big undertaking. There's only one full-time permanent processing archivist at Bancroft. Laura's job is actually to oversee archival processing, not really to process collections herself. But a researcher had asked her about using Heinrich's materials, so Laura looked into it. And once she did, she was hooked. She says the collection was unlike anything she's worked on. He was a very meticulous person. Um, You see that in the way he kept his records. Really careful, really documented everything. Um, Very systematic. One of my favorite things in the collection are his his work diaries, which he kept these meticulous work diaries his whole life, where he writes down everything he's doing during the day, what he's doing on any case at any one time, all his appointments. Um, They're like a treasure trove to really see how he approached cases. When archivists work, she says, they're thinking about the content of the collection, but also about the context for its creation. So I think my biggest responsibility is to make sure that I communicate to future users, not just what's in the collection, but how it was created, why it was created, what were the purposes around its creation. So unlike a lot of other collections, which might not include much information about certain items, the Heinrich collection is rich with context. This is his work that he did. He gathered all these materials from around. These are from a murder in uh, Mariposa County. Two people were murdered. And these, these are the lethal bullets. So these are the actual bullets used that killed the people in Heinrich stored them in a matchbox, match as you can see. So you can see the, the um, and he labeled it lethal bullets. And he, he tended to wrap all his um, evidence up in little paper. And this one is a test bullet. So he, I guess he did ballistics on the bullets. So he okay. had test bullets and the lethal bullet, and he could compare. Um, these because Heinrich began working as a forensic scientist in 1919, there weren't really any regulations in place for what he could and couldn't do. So he would just kind of go to a crime scene and start picking up some evidence and just take it back to his lab. Or he might ask the police to examine evidence like a gun and just never return it. So there are three guns in the collection. And when Laura found them, she actually had to call the UCPD so they could come and disable them. And that's that was a first for her. While Laura was going through all the materials, she says she felt like she got to know Heinrich. There is when you process inevitably a sort of an, an emotional connection or a responsibility you start to feel for the creator of the papers and for the other people who are documented in the papers and for the victims of the crimes. And so being an archivist, there is sort of an emotional um, part to it. We don't talk about that a lot, but it's there. She learned about Heinrich's life, his father's suicide, his anxieties about finances, how he talked his way into attending the University of California. And she learned about how he taught himself forensic science, an emerging field that he would use as an expert witness to sway juries in prominent cases. He, would, he knew how to, how to present evidence, and he was in demand as an expert witness. And he, he, frankly, he knew how to sell himself as an expert witness, too. So that's when I think of Heinrich, I think of him as an expert witness and, and a scientist who could, you know play that role and give that sort of scientific legitimacy to a case. I think that's why people sought him out, because they knew that he he could help them win their case. The public was sort of fascinated by science in the courtroom, and he was part of that. While investigating the train robbery gone way wrong, 
authorities had come across a cabin in Siskiyou County that the criminals had stayed in while on the run. So Heinrich took the train from Berkeley, where he was running a crime lab out of his home, to the cabin in Oregon. He took photos, collected evidence, and then he brought all of it back to analyze in his lab. Authorities had found a pair of overalls in the cabin that had an oil spot on them, so they assumed the overalls belonged to a local mechanic. But at his lab, Heinrich found that the spot was actually pitch from a tree and determined that authorities should really be looking for a lumberjack, one who lived and worked in the Pacific Northwest and was white in his early 20s, about 5 feet 10, with light brown hair. He dug through the pockets of the overalls to find the little, you know, lint and bits of pine trees or whatever. And that's what he, then he would put it under his microscope. And I mean, that's very common now, but back then it was less common. I mean, he was one of the first really to do that. In the 1958 book, The Wizard of Berkeley, author Eugene Block writes that Heinrich also figured out the suspect was left-handed after he found wood chips in the right pocket. A left-handed lumberjack's right side would be closest to the tree as they chopped, so the right pocket would catch the flying wood chips. And from other clues and evidence that Heinrich collected, like purchase records and a signature, the Diotremont brothers became suspects. Heinrich figured all of this out using forensic science, which he taught himself. He had learned at a young age that people depended on him and that if he wanted to succeed, he'd have to figure out any way he could to make it happen. When Heinrich was a teenager, his father killed himself. And it became Heinrich's job to support his family. So he trained himself to become a pharmacist. At 18, he passed the boards and began working as a pharmacist in Tacoma, Washington, where he grew up. But he felt like he needed more training, so he came to the University of California, which later became UC Berkeley, to learn chemistry. He didn't have a high school diploma and was told he couldn't attend. So he petitioned for reconsideration, and in 1904, he was let in as a special status student. In 1908, he graduated with a degree in chemistry, and the same year, he married an education student he met at Berkeley named Marion, with whom he would have two sons. Then, after stints as a chemist in Tacoma, Washington, a police chief in the city of Alameda, and a city manager in Boulder, Colorado, Heinrich was pulled back to Berkeley in 1916 by the death of a famous handwriting analyst and expert witness, Theodore Kitka. Heinrich came back to take over Kitka's practice. And then, in 1919, Heinrich started his own crime lab in the basement of his Berkeley home on Oxford Street. In the summer, Heinrich would teach criminology at UC Berkeley. He taught the first criminology course offered anywhere in the country. We have these great essays he had his students write about the very first criminology course ever offered anywhere in the country. He taught it, and he had them write these blue book essays evaluating the course. So you get these really interesting sort of perspectives from these students who are being exposed to something that's totally new. And um, they're really fascinating. And that Heinrich had his students do that as their final assignment to evaluate the course was really an interesting choice on his part. And I think he was actually a really good teacher as far as I can tell. 
In the collection, you can almost see kind of step by step how Heinrich taught himself forensic science. He had a vast library, which we have most of at the Bancroft Library and have cataloged all of his library. So you'll find all kinds of interesting books about, you know, wax substances. And you know, he'll read and he's self-taught in ballistics. Um, all of his handwriting analysis skills were self-taught. Ink analysis, typewriting analysis, um, blood splatter analysis, all of that. Uh, he was really a kind of a jack of all trades, I think. And he so he taught himself almost everything that he knew. Lara says the bread and butter of Heinrich's work was analyzing handwriting and typewriting. In any given month, he might have been working on 30 to 40 cases, and most of them were for fraud or forgery or other crimes like that. So he had his own way of doing handwriting analysis. And what you found throughout the collection were these, all of his little, what they call cuttings, which are these little teeny cutout letters. He would photograph letters, enlarge them, cut them out, and then they're just all over the place in this collection. When the U.S. entered World War I in 1916, Heinrich worked for the U.S. Army's Military Intelligence Corps, which had intercepted documents about a conspiracy by German-supported Hindu revolutionaries who planned to incite an uprising in India, which would have diverted British forces. To decode the documents, Heinrich worked with tutors to learn three East Indian dialects. Then he analyzed the handwriting, typewriting, and ink. And he was able to prove who wrote dozens of the documents. There was another famous case in the 1920s that involved Heinrich. A priest was murdered in the South Bay, and Heinrich examined threatening anonymous notes written to the priest. He figured out that they were written by a baker by the way the letters were formed, just like writing on a cake. And after a four-year investigation, Heinrich's work on the Diotremont brothers' case would finally pay off. In 1927, the Diotremont brothers were caught. Hugh, the youngest, had joined the U.S. Army and was stationed in the Philippines. The other two, twins Roy and Ray, were arrested in Ohio by the FBI. In 1928, they were convicted and sentenced to life in prison in Oregon. Hugh D'Otremont was paroled in 1959 and died from cancer a few months later. Roy, who had schizophrenia, was given a lobotomy in prison and died in a nursing home a few months after he was paroled in 1983. Ray, paroled in 1961, spent many years working as a part-time janitor at the University of Oregon in Eugene. He died in 1984. As for Heinrich, he worked as a forensic scientist until he died in 1953 at age 72. Lara says that Heinrich will stick with her. My sense of his personality will linger with me. That seems strange, but more than the cases, I feel like I got to know Heinrich and how he approached his life and his work. Archivists sometimes like to think of themselves as super objective, but that's sort of nonsense. In a way, you bring your own skills and your own sensibilities to the work that you do. He will linger. I, I will have a sense of him for a long time. Lara says mostly she's happy that the Heinrich collection is finally open. She's curious to know how researchers and anyone else interested in the collection will use all of the materials. There haven't been many requests yet. But she thinks once the news gets out that the collection is open, there will be some more interest. 
As with most archival collections at the Bancroft Library, the Heinrich Collection is stored in an off-site facility. Anyone interested in viewing the collection can create a free account through Aeon. That's Bancroft's special collections request system. Make a request online and then view the materials in the Bancroft Library's reading room. You can find more information on the Bancroft Library's website at library.berkeley.edu. For Berkeley News, I'm Ann Bryce. You can read Tor Haugen's story about the Heinrich Collection on Library News. It was also published in Fiat Lux, the library's quarterly magazine. The article explores three notorious cases Heinrich worked on, the Diotremont train robbery, a major Hollywood scandal, and a pair of killings that weren't solved until decades after Heinrich's death. You can listen to Fiat Vox, spelled F-I-A-T-V-O-X, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Find more episodes on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu.